I intend by God's grace that this sermon will be an eye-opener, a message that will arouse you to a saving action. I have chosen a text in which God speaks for the same purpose. It is found in Revelations 3, 16 and 17. So, then because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth, because thou sayest, I am rich, and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. Now in the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, God describes the condition of his church during seven distinct time periods, from the beginning of the Christian era down through the centuries to the very end of time when Christ shall return to save a people who have proven faithful. God's last day prophet has much to say about this. In the book Acts of the Apostles 585, the names of the seven churches are symbolic of the church in different periods of the Christian era. The number seven indicates completeness and is symbolic of the fact that the messages extend to the end of time, while the symbols used reveal the conditions of the church at different periods in the history of the world. Now the time period in which we live is that of Laodicea, the last church, and no one alive today who is aware of present world conditions and especially knowledgeable of what is taking place within God's remnant church today will question the fact that we are the Laodicean church. In this presentation, I shall present the scripture and the spirit of prophecy, which I believe are inspired by God. And this will help us to determine the answers to the following. What is the meaning of the word Laodicea? And is the Laodicean church also called the remnant church? As we begin, we must also find an inspired definition as to what is the true church. Now when Seventh-day Adventists hear the word church mentioned, most of them think of a church building or the conference, the union, and the general conference. But what does God's servant state his church is to be? In Manuscript 17, 81 and 82, I read, quote, 
God has a church. It is not the great cathedral. Neither is it the national establishment. Neither is it the various denominations. It is the people who love God and keep the commandments. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. <clears throat> Where Christ is even among the humble few, this is Christ's church. For the presence of the High and Holy One inhabiteth eternity can alone constitute a church. Then she continued to point out such a people as we read in the story of redemption on page 88. In holy vision, John saw the remnant church in an age of lawlessness, and he points them out in unmistakable language. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. They are in harmony with that law that rests in the ark in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. And this is exactly what we find in the scriptures in Revelations 12, verse 17. The dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Perhaps it would be well if I would read that again and adding in what we know to be true. The dragon, the devil, was wroth. He was angry with the woman, the true church. And he went to make war with the last part, the remnant, of her seed, which keep the commandments of God, the Ten Commandments, and have the testimony of Jesus Christ, which is the spirit of prophecy. In Revelation 14, 12, we read, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and of the faith of Jesus. <clears throat> Note the characteristics of the remnant. One, they love God. Two, they keep the commandments. Three, they have the faith of Jesus. Four, they have and believe the spirit of prophecy. These are the characteristics of God's remnant church. But keep in mind that there is no other church that follows the remnant church. And that the remnant church was established by God to give the three angels messages. Now, when God describes the conditions that are to be found within his last church on this earth, he calls these people the Laodicean church, which means literally a people adjudged. And God describes his church in words found in Revelation that give you, I'm sorry to say, not a very beautiful picture. 
for it reveals a miserable state of affairs. Let me read it. Revelation 3.15-17 I know thy works. Thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth, because thou sayest, I am rich, and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knoweth not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. Consider these characteristics of the Laodicean church. The church says she is rich and in need of nothing, but God says she is wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Laodicea professes to love God, but God sees her as she really is, naked, without a wedding garment. Therefore, they have not received imputed or imparted righteousness, and they have neither a title to heaven nor a right to take possession of heaven. Really, they have no forgiveness, no justification, neither do they have the divine gift of a divine nature, which God says, he is able to perfect your character. What a tragedy! Now, who are the Laodiceans? In volume one of the Testimonies, page 186, she tells us that she was, quote, shown that the testimony to the Laodiceans apply to God's people at the present time. And the reason it has not accomplished a great work is because of, the, because of the hardness of their hearts. Now that's a startling denunciation, especially when we know that it applies at the present time. Too many of us have overlooked the teachings of Christ which he told us that in the end time there would be a division within the church because of the presence of both wheat and tares. Let's talk about the wheat. These are the ones who have the faith of Jesus, who keep his commandments and live in the light of the third angel's message. They are called, quote, a little company, unquote, by the servant of the Lord. This small company is a part of a very large organization. This is the remnant within the remnant church. These are the ones who sigh and cry for the abominations that are being done in the midst of the church today. On the other hand, there are the tares. These are the ones who have accepted falsehood as truth. They are the ones who God says are wretched, miserable, poor, 
blind, and naked. But they have convinced themselves that they are rich and in need of nothing. In Review and Herald 9, 19, 1883, it is plainly represented to us that there are two distinct parties, and I'm quoting, formed from a company that was once united. The members of the one of these parties are in resistance to the will of God. The ruin of this class is certain. And it doesn't take much to look out today and see that there are two distinct parties within the church. Come with me and let's take a, a closer look at our church through the eyes of God's prophet. You will be amazed with me as I read in Selected Messages 2, 58, that rebellion and apostasy are in the very air we breathe. We shall be affected by it unless we by faith hang our helpless soul upon Christ. Now consider how the pen of inspiration pictures the present conditions. Selected Messages 2, page 389. The truth for this time is precious, but those whose hearts have been broken have not been broken by falling on the rock Jesus, will not see and understand what is truth. They will accept that which pleases their ideas and will begin to manufacture another foundation than that which is laid. They flatter their vanity and esteem, thinking they are capable of removing the pillars of faith and replacing them with pillars they have devised. And then she adds these startling words. This will continue as long as time shall last. And so, friend, don't look for any change in the church today. There are those who are attempting to change the pillars of faith, and this is going to continue. Now, may I ask a question? Who would dare to remove the foundation which God has laid? Well, in the book Maranatha 92, I read, Before the last development of the work of apostasy, there will be a confusion of faith. Now notice what she says. There will not be clear and definite ideas concerning the mystery of God. Then she says, one truth after another will be corrupted." Unquote. Now let's consider for a few moments how some of the great truths of God are being corrupted before our eyes. You know that Ellen White seldom wept, but in the year 1885 she wept. She wept so that the tears actually fell on her manuscript as she wrote the testimony she was writing concerning our day. 
You can read about it in volume 5, page 77 to 84. Why was she weeping? Because she foresaw how men who had been trained, and notice this, under the hand of Satan, would then teach false doctrines to our church members. Listen how she grieved, volume 5, she wrote, when holy hands would bear the ark no longer. These false teachers would be permitted of God to be a scourge to idolatrous Israel. I'm quoting on. God, in his efforts to arouse his people, would even permit heresies to come in among them, which will sift them, separating the chaff from the wheat." Unquote. In volume 5, page 80, she added, Every wind of doctrine will be blowing. And later she wrote in Testimonies to Ministers, page 409 and 410, Many <clears throat> will stand in our pulpits with the torch of false prophecy in their hands, kindled from the hellish torch of Satan." Unquote. How utterly shocking to think that she uses the word many. Many would stand in our pulpits teaching Satan's doctrines, and believe me, that time has arrived. Let me mention a few of these satanic doctrines that we hear today. One of them, that we can sin till Jesus comes. This is being taught pointedly or by impl impl implication that we need not really keep God's law, for we cannot attain perfection before Jesus comes. I need not tell you, do I, that that's a lie of Satan? Then look at another, that the gift of prophecy is not a valid, essential doctrine for us today. Oh, it's good motherly advice, should you like to enrich the history, knowledge of your church, because it has been largely copied and filled with error so don't even preach it from the pulpit. Don't use her quotations. Don't even let the Sabbath school teacher use it to lead her flock in the right and narrow way. And if you think I am exaggerating, I was amazed to find in the Adventist Review of February 1995 one of the editors who wrote an article called Divided We Crawl. Evidently, this man does not believe the spirit of prophecy, or he wouldn't have written anything like he did. After having some problem with the daughter, he caught the idea that he would somehow like to be a dictator in the church. And if he could do this, and I'm quoting, he said, the first law I'll pass 
would be that no Adventist should quote from the writings of Ellen G. White for 365 days. The moratorium to include editorials, sermons, articles, Sabbath school lessons, talks, term papers, everything. Can you imagine anyone writing in our church paper such a statement? But I continue. During this period, everyone would be compelled to do exactly what Mrs. White herself advocated. Let all prove their position from the scriptures and substantiate every point they claim as truth from the revealed word of God. Now you see, talk about taking things out of context. Here he is quoting her when she is telling that we must know our doctrines and every doctrine we must be able to prove from the Bible. And that I concur with. But then he continues, with this regulation in force, dozens of publications among us would fold, thousands of sermons would be abandoned, and many of us would have to scramble to come up with biblical support for the things we were so sure about before. Furthermore, I would stipulate that whatever doctrine or teaching could not be validated from the scripture during this moratorium should not be advocated when the band ends. Can you conceive of what he's saying? He would never have it mentioned anything about what we find in the last part of the book of Great Controversy about Protestants and Catholics in a great ecumenical movement or oh, how the mark of the beast will be enforced or the warnings of Sister White in telling us to get out of the cities for something is going to happen and then he would not have us even to mention some of those wonderful little sidelights that Sister White gave us under the inspiration of God such as that it was Moses who opened the gate when Jesus returned from this earth to his father after his resurrection, or of the angel who took the place of Satan. True, you don't find these things in the Bible, but was not Sister White given this knowledge from God? Surely, this man would not have even these things brought to our attention. Presumably, he does not believe that she was inspired. These are the things that are happening today. He wants a unity in the church, and so do I. But we want unity that is based on truth and not compromise with evil. Then there are those today who are teaching us that there is no sanctuary in heaven, that a total atonement was finished at the cross. In other words, we are teaching then the same that you will find in any other church, that therefore there is no need for Christ to minister in the most holy. He did it all on Calvary. 
And then we hear such things being taught today. Men are going so far as to even question the doctrine of creation in a seven-day week. And there are others who are questioning a year-day principle of prophetic interpretation, doing away with the 70-week prophecy of Daniel 9 and of the 2300-day prophecy, which points to the exact time of 1844, when God would once again develop a remnant people who would do his bidding. And you are hearing less and less of health reform today, which is so needed to keep us strong physically for the time that's just ahead. Oh, I could give you many others, but this should be enough to startle you and awaken you. We now have many young ministers, and older ones too, I'm sorry to say, who have attended high learning centers in Babylon and have returned to the church to teach what they learned in Babylon. That is why Sister White said in Testimonies to Ministers 409 that false doctrines would be taken, quote, from the hellish torch of Satan, unquote. And I'm not talking about hidden irregularities. This is being done in the open today. Any student of God's word and of the spirit of prophecy will recognize this to be common knowledge. What a tragedy that we should, that this should happen to us in the end time when the sealing process is now taking place. God's word speaks very clearly of this in Jeremiah 23, 1 and 2. Woe be to the pastors that destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, saith the Lord. I will visit upon you the evil of your doings, saith the Lord. And then in Ezra 34, verses 2 to 4, again, Woe be to the shepherds of Israel that do not that feed that do feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? Ye feed not the flock. The diseased have ye not strengthened, neither have ye healed that which was sick, neither have ye bound up that which was broken, neither neither have ye brought again that which was driven away. Neither have ye sought that which was lost, but with force and with cruelty have ye ruled them. And I can tell you from personal experience that this has been happening in the church where I attend. Force, ruling as a dictator, this seems to be the program today. But now listen to this. I am reading from testimony, Testimonies to Ministers, page 409. The faithful ministers will be removed from the people who think they know so much. Now what's this? You see, there is a responsibility of the laity in this matter. 
Can we support Satan's many false messengers who are in the pulpits? Or should we awake out of our sleep and refuse to receive and maintain any of these men? In volume one, page 261, she continues, there are faithful, fearful woes for those who preach the truth but are not sanctified by it. And then notice, and also for those who consent to receive and maintain the unsanctified to minister to them in word and doctrine. There is not the least doubt that we are beginning to experience this situation within our churches today. I'm quoting again from the same source. None but those who have been overcoming by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony will be found with the loyal and the true. With, and then she says those words, the little company standing in the light, unquote. And then she continues, it is time for the little company to sigh and cry in earnest and also to put away sin out of their own lives. Now in the book of Ezekiel, God gave the prophet a vision of our end time and what would happen. In the ninth chapter, verse four, I'm reading, the Lord said, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark upon the forehead of the men that sigh and that cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst thereof. Now the majority within our church are so asleep today that they don't seem to realize what's happening. It has not dawned on most of us as to the magnitude of how far we have wandered from truth, from the old landmarks and the foundation of our message. We have become lukewarm, having need of nothing, as we read in Revelation 3.17, knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, if this were not so, we would be crying out against these abominations. Now, what is this mark that God would place upon those who are crying out against these false teachings? They are those who are sealed in truth by the Holy Spirit, as you read in Ephesians 1, verse 13. In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Speaking of this, in Bible Commentary 4, 1161, we read, What is the seal of the living God, which is placed in the forehead of his people? It is a mark which angels but not human eyes can read. For the destroying angel must see this mark of redemption. 
The angel with a writer's inkhorn is to place a mark upon the foreheads of all who are separated from sin and sinners. And the destroying angel follows this angel, unquote. Did you notice the words, who are separated from sin? The warning message of Revelation 13, of 3 to the Laodicean church is that we should gain victory over sin before he comes. Remember, to him that overcometh, will I grant to sit with me in my throne. How is this accomplished? By a settling into the truth. Bible Commentary 4, 1161. Just as soon as the people of God are sealed in their foreheads, it is not any seal or mark that can be seen, but a settling into the truth, both intellectually and spiritually, so that they cannot be moved. Just as soon as God's people are sealed and prepared for the shaking, it will come. Indeed, it has begun already. The judgments of God are now upon the land to give us a warning that we may know what is coming." Unquote. The majority within the church are not ready. It's very plain. And they are destined to be destroyed. Does this not alarm you? You know, when a tragedy strikes our nation, such as an airline goes down with some 200 aboard, we mourn as a nation. But I'm talking about a tragedy soon to strike our church in which millions will be lost. Ezekiel 9.8 And it came to pass, while they were slaying them, that I was left, so the prophet says. And I fell upon my face and cried and said, O Lord God, wilt thou destroy all the residue, that's the remnant, of Israel, in thy pouring out of thy fury upon Jerusalem? Ezekiel was so astounded as God revealed to him what was to happen that he began to preach about it. And he was hated for telling the truth. You know, God's servants have always been hated when they warned the people. Remember they took godly Isaiah and sawed him asunder, as you read in Hebrews 11.35. Daniel, at the age of 90, <coughs> pardon me, <coughs> was thrown into the lion's den. And Jesus Christ, when he looked at those priests in his days, he called them whited sepulchers. And what did they do? They crucified him. Paul, who pointed the finger unafraid at sin, was often beaten and stoned. Oh, how we should pray for the faithful ministers among us today who are preaching the truth and warning the people to get ready and to be ready. What about those words that we read to destroy the residue? The residue is the remnant. 
this destruction is going to be exceedingly great. In Ezekiel 9, 5, and 6, it says, Go ye after him through the city, and smite. Let not your eyes spare, neither have ye pity. Slay utterly old and young, both maids and little children and women. But come not near any man upon whom is the mark, and begin at my sanctuary. Then they began at the ancient men which were before the house. You know, the word of God is clear. In this there will be no pity. None will be spared. God is exacting. He has done everything in love that he could do for his people. And over one half of his members in the remnant church are not ready to be sealed ready to be lost. This is clearly indicated by many parables such as the ten virgins and what you read in Ezekiel 9 and in the spirit of prophecy. Why? Because God's people have been lulled into a spiritual slumber. What does this tell you about today's preaching? It seems as though the leadership is instructing the preachers, don't rock the boat, don't divide the flock, compromise, preach love, preach unity, preach smooth things, but don't point the finger at sin. When in fact the church is in the midst of a great tragedy, honestly, look at our church. For the first time in my 55 years of ministry, there are great theological differences among the ministry and also among the laity. Long ago, we were told two parties would develop. I'm reading Selected Messages 114. Division will come in the church. Two parties will be developed. The wheat and the tares grow up together for the harvest. And so, there will be two camps, two groups that will differ in theological thinking. One group will be wrong, for they are not preaching the truth. Such will be the first to feel the wrath of God. Millions will be shaken out. Their probation will be closed for it begins within the house of God. That's startling. In 1 Peter 4, 17, we were told that time is to come, that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? Ezekiel was shown these two groups of ministers in our and church members. The first group, those that are sighing and crying for abominations against them, praying and pleading and reproving. As we read in volume five, page 210, the earnest prayers of this faithful few will not be in vain. When the Lord comes forth as an avenger, he will also come as a protector of those who have preserved the faith 
in its purity. The command is, go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and that cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst thereof. These sighing, crying ones had been holding forth the word of life. They had reproved, counseled, and entreated. Some who had been dishonoring God's re God repented and humbled their hearts before him. But the glory of the Lord had departed from Israel, although many still continued the forms of religion. His power and presence was lacking. Now here's the other group, those that are indifferent. They do not want to hear the unique Adventist message preached. They are satisfied with what we call soft preaching. They want to hear love and peace, not the old-time Adventist ring. They don't want to hear the three angels' messages anymore. They don't want to be told what sin is, and they don't want it called by that name. Their ministers are preaching what can be heard in any Sunday-keeping church. Recently in the church where I attend, a man was baptized, and he talked to me. I asked him why he didn't come anymore. Well, he said, I'm hearing exactly what I heard out of the, in the churches that I left. Why should I go? In volume 5, page 211, the class who do not feel grieved over their own spiritual declension, nor mourn over the sins of others, will be left without the seal of God. The Lord commissions his messengers, the men with a slaughtering weapon in their hands, go, go ye after him through the city and smite. Let not your eyes spare, neither have ye pity. And they began at the ancient men which were before the house. Now I'm still quoting, I want you to notice. Here she says, we see that the church the Lord's sanctuary was the first to feel the stroke of the wrath of God. And what about these ancient men? Listen, I'm quoting, the ancient men, those to whom God had given great light and who had stood as guardians of the spiritual interests of the people, had betrayed their trust. They had taken the position that we need not look for miracles and the marked manifestation of God's power as in former days. And what do they say? Listen, I'm reading. Times have changed. These words strengthen their unbelief and they say, the Lord will not do good, neither will he do evil. He is too merciful to visit his people in judgment. Thus, Peace and safety is the cry from men who will never again lift up their voice like a trumpet to show God's people their transgressions 
and the house of Jacob their sins. Now I want to read something and I want to make it clear. These are not my words. This is what the servant of the Lord said regarding the very words of Ezekiel the prophet. I'm quoting God's servant, quote, These dumb dogs that would not bark are the ones who feel the just vengeance of an offending God. What a statement. What a statement. This is what's going to happen to these false shepherds who are not giving the full message who are not preparing the people for end-time events. Notice, volume 5, page 212. No superiority of rank, dignity, or worldly wisdom, no position in sacred office will preserve men from sacrificing principle when left to their own deceitful hearts. Those who have been regarded as worthy and righteous proved to be ringleaders in apostasy and examples in indifference and in the abuse of God's mercy. Their wicked course he will tolerate no longer and in his wrath he deals with them without mercy. What a statement. Oh, that our ministers and our people would read these things in volume 5, 207 to 216. That they would go to God and that they would ask their ministry to wake them up. The minister needs to realize that he's not just working in a common job. He indeed is accountable every day to the Almighty God. His first responsibility is not to the conference. It is to God above. I'll never forget the experience that Dean and I had when we first retired in the work. We decided to visit a different church each Sabbath for some 10 Sabbath services. During that time, we went from church to church, a different church each Sabbath. We never heard but one sermon that I considered to be a unique Seventh-day Adventist sermon. They were all given as if the same that you would hear in any church in the world. There was only one sermon, and that was by a retired conference president that had an appeal to get ready. In all of the church sermons that we listened to, it was nothing but psychology and stories. Never did we hear one word of the spirit of prophecy in one sermon. There was one sermon that we heard that the preacher didn't even open his Bible or quote one text from the Bible. Never did we hear the words, Jesus is coming soon. Never did we hear it's time to get ready. You know, God's wrath is going to be poured out upon those preachers who have not preached the last warning message. In Zechariah 4.12, 
This shall be the plague wherewith the Lord will smite all the people that have fought against Jerusalem. And as you read these things, you will find that he is speaking about his church. Their flesh shall consume away while they stand upon their feet, and their eyes shall consume away in their holes, and their tongue shall consume away in their mouth. What? What a terrible picture. What a price to pay for rebellion. This special plague is going to fall on the unfaithful ministry. The false watchman will be the first to fall. Oh, now I hear some of you say, but Brother Nelson, you are taking this out of context. This is referring to the final destruction of the wicked. Well, if you think so, read Great Controversy, page 556 with me. As I read these words, the mark of deliverance has been set upon those that sigh and cry for all the abomination that be done. And now the angel of death goes forth, represented in Ezekiel's vision by the men with a slaughtering weapon to whom the command is given, slay utterly old and young, both maids and little children and women, and come not near any man upon whom is the mark, and begin at my sanctuary. Says the prophet, they began at the ancient men which were before the house. The work of destruction begins among those who have professed to be the spiritual guardians of the people. The false watchmen are the first to fall. There are none to pity or to spare. Men, women, maidens, and little children perish together. Reading on, I find she says these words, This shall be the plague wherewith the Lord will smite all the people that have fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall consume away while they stand upon their feet. an awful outpouring of God's unmingled wrath fall on the wicked inhabitants of the earth, priests, rulers, and people. And then in the story of redemption, page 415, again she drives it home. The false shepherds had been the signal object of Jehovah's wrath. Their eyes had consumed in their holes and their tongues in their mouths while they stood upon their feet. Now really, I must agree that it's hard to preach an unpopular message. You know, one's inner soul wants to be at peace with the world. Nominal Adventists do not want to cry and to sigh aloud today. The term nominal Adventist literally means do nothing and be lost. Listen, friend, don't try to do away with the old landmarks, for they are the only sure signs that will lead you home. You're going to be labeled straight-laced extremists, for pacification today is a denial of the truth. Sin must be called by its right name. 
in Selected Messages 293, call rebellion by its right name and apostasy by its right name. True leadership will guard against error. True leadership will never sanction compromise. True leadership will jealously guard the flock. The flock. My dear brothers and sisters, the sealing is now taking place. How are we to put our lives in order? Not by looking at anyone in the church. Not even your pastor. And don't look to me. Look only to Jesus. He'll answer your prayers. Jesus will teach you how to prepare. But don't be tied to a sleeping congregation. Don't be satisfied until you have searched for truth on your knees. This is no time to listen to soft preaching. Every message should ring with the words, prepare, prepare, prepare. Get ready, get ready, get ready. We all need an experience that I'm sure we don't have yet. This is why God's servant pleaded continually, get ready, get ready, get ready. This is no time to criticize. Criticism never won anybody, but crying and sighing in love and in prayer, in pleading with others, in living a godly life, this is what will help and save others. Take courage. It won't be long. Jesus is coming soon. I must read God's last appeal before I close. In Revelations 3, 18 to 21, to his Laodicean church, he said, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness <clears throat> do not appear and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame, and am sat down with my Father in his throne. Truly, it is a great privilege to belong to God's last true church. And there is hope for his Laodicean church. In Bible Commentary 7, page 966, the counsel of the true witness does not represent those who are lukewarm, as in a hopeless case. I like this. There is yet a chance to remedy their state. And the Laodicean message is full of encouragement. For the backslidden church may yet buy the gold of faith and love, may yet have the white robe of righteousness of Christ, that the shame of their nakedness need not appear. Purity of heart 
Purity of motive may yet characterize those who are half-hearted and who are striving to serve God and mammon. They may yet wash their robes of character and make them white in the blood of the Lamb. Oh, my friend, there is hope for our church if our members will heed the message of the Laodicean. In Selected Messages 2, 380, the church may appear as about to fall, but then thank God, she says, but it does not fall. It remains while the sinners in Zion will be sifted out, the chaff separated from the precious wheat. It's a terrible ordeal, but nevertheless, it must take place. And then she adds in volume 1, page 187, those who come up to every point and stand every test and overcome, be the price that it may, and have heeded the counsel of the true witness, they will receive the latter rain and thus be fitted for translation. Praise God. There is hope for the church. There is hope for you and for me. Praise God. He has given us the help. Speaking of promises, the promises to all of the seven churches are for us today. And may God help us to keep the faith that we may be ready to see him. Let us pray. Loving Father, thank you for a message that awakens us. A message that tells us just who we are and what we are. And God, thank you for that courage that you give that it is possible that through thy grace, we may take hold of thy power and overcome. Help us, God, to keep the faith. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.